Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Edwig. This week we're back with Jamie Davies, who is Professor of Experimental Anatomy at the University of Edinburgh. In the third episode of our coronavirus mini-series, I spoke to Jamie about the database he and his lab created, which was a curated list of known drugs and drug targets that should be prioritised in the fight against COVID-19. We also covered how the pandemic has changed the way research is done, and what effects this could have on science going forward. It's a great episode, so go and listen if you haven't already. In this episode, we bring you more of our conversation, where we dive into the mysterious work of an experimental anatomist, discuss the value in taking things slowly, and talk about the quest to grow organs in the lab. Enjoy! So a lot of what you do is, is looking at how you kind of get from the simple to the complex. What is, what is kind of the, the best research that we have today to tell us about how organs develop from just like a single cell? Well, it's very difficult to put that in a nutshell. It's what's clear is for most organs, there is a huge amount of self-organization that goes on. So even if you take organs apart, when they're, not, not when they're fully formed, but, the, but the, the cells that are about to form the organ and the embryo, that you know, a few, typically a few hundred cells, maybe up to a few thousand that are about, even if you take them apart and shuffle them about and put them back together, they will still be able to produce the tissues of the organ. And what's, what's been very clear in, in the last 20 or 30 years is that the cells are communicating with each other intensely. So there are sort of feedback loops of, well, I'm going to do this, you, my neighbor, please do that. And the neighbor will sort of reply saying, yes, well, I'll do that, but then you do this, please. And there's a kind of, there's a very strong conversation happening in the language of signaling molecules between cells. And I think one of the, one of the ways that we're now moving is almost having identified what a lot of the signals are in the sort of, you know, grand old days of grind and bind biochemistry or, or, or genetic knockout is now starting to think, well, okay, having identified all of these individual ones, let's step back and try to analyze the conversation and understand as a whole how these conversations take place to generate order from, from relative disorder. And I, I think that's, that's part of where all of this is going. You know, as, as you said, my interest is how you get complexity out of simplicity. But of course, the sorts of experiments that we've been using to pursue that question, like, like taking you know, progenitor cells apart and uh, away from each other and putting them together. That led very naturally to the idea, can we take progenitor cells, stem cells in other words, that want to make an organ and put them together and make a new human organ? And, you know, what, what we find, if you just do something as naive as that, you get the microstructures of the tissues forming beautifully, but you don't have the macroscopic anatomy. So, for example, you know, the kidney, the kidney is a whole load of plumbing, and essentially, there's a big tree of tubes and then lots of fancy tubes arranged around that tree. And then the whole blood system also arranges around that tree. So it's really important that that single tree forms properly. If you just do the kind of experiment I said, take the progenitor cells, throw them together in a tube, what they'll make is lots and lots of little trees that are disconnected, each of which will have everything right around it. So we've discovered uh, in the last few years, we need to break the symmetry of the system in some way. So it isn't that all parts of it are the same. But, you know, for example, if we have the tree-forming cells in one unique place or all together at the beginning, they'll form a single tree and then everything else will arrange itself properly around that tree. Or if we have an asymmetrical signaling environment mimicking what happens in the embryo, we can make one branch of that tree, the trunk effectively, become a ureter, which is a tube that leads away from the kidney, while the rest become the kidney. You know, and that, that was a case of realising well, that doesn't happen when we just do this in, in culture. 
Let's go back to the embryo, find out why, ask new questions of the embryo, find out, oh, there's a signaling molecule coming from one side of the developing kidney. Let's go back to culture, let's put a fake source of that signaling molecule there, and then suddenly, bam, we get ureter. So there's this kind of interplay between, between embryology, trying to do some engineering, running against a brick wall in the engineering, <laughs> going back to the embryo with a new question that you didn't really have before, making a new discovery in the embryo, getting past that brick wall and running into the next one. <laughs> An iterative process of, well, I mean, all scientists will recognise the banging your head into a brick wall. <laughs> it's basically that's science in a nutshell, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I suppose it's a challenge because you, you're creating tissues, they're not inside the body, and so they don't have the natural sources of these signals telling them where to go and what to do. So is, is that, has that posed a big sort of challenge for you in your research? Well, you know, it's both the challenge and the outcome. Yes, it's the challenge, but, but that challenge is what made us ask questions that then got us to understand the embryo better. At the moment, our big challenge is that we can only grow these things to be fairly small because they don't have a blood supply. Yeah. Um, one PhD student in my group is working very hard to get not just blood vessels into these, but to have blood flowing through those vessels. Yulia Tarnik is her name. And she's, she's built this wonderful arrangement of, of pumps and microcontrollers and tubes, and she's learned a lot of microsurgical stuff so that she can start to connect the mechanical to the biological. And yes, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing setup. And actually, some of the um, engineering behind it was, was made by her father. He's an engineer, and she was talking to him about her project. Yeah. And, and he just produced some wonderful custom-made um, materials for her. Oh, that's amazing. Do you, do you find yourself collaborating with, with different labs and different, different fields entirely a lot of the time? Yes, yes, absolutely. So there's a collaboration I'm in at the moment, um, an EU collaboration, where we have me as a, you know, this is a sort of mammalian biologist, a botanist who works on light-sensitive proteins from plants, an expert in cybernetics and control theory, and a physicist who is a modeler. And we're trying to put all of this together so that we can use light to control the behaviour of cells that are making organs. Yeah, I, I imagine that there can be a lot of different perspectives coming together and you, you don't necessarily all think in the same way, perhaps, and have different ways of, of tackling the same problem, which come, you might get some really interesting outcomes from that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, sometimes communication can be a little bit difficult, especially when two fields use the same word to mean something different. <laughs> but... <laughs> But again, that, that's the fun of it. And everybody, you know, in these collaborations, everybody's patient. We all, we all realise that, you know, we, we have to drop our in-lab slang and start to kind of, you know, speak to each other with a huge respect for each other's intelligence, but speak to each other like first-year undergraduates in terms of the vocabulary, you know, and always be near a blackboard or a whiteboard or just something <laughs> yeah. on the tablecloth. So... Um... You did your PhD on neural development. Is is that kind of developmental biology something that you've always been interested in? Did you did you pick up an interest for it uh, during your undergraduate degree? Yeah, I suppose my my long-standing scientific interest is is how you go from simple to complex. And before when I was at school, before I was going to university, I'd sort of assumed I turned out to be a radio astronomer, looking at the formation of galaxies. But where I went to university, you don't study a single science, you study natural sciences, which is a, a mixture of things. That's the first time I'd really met developmental biology and sort of thought, you know, how, would, how did I miss something? So, <laughs> as an example of going from the complexity of an egg to the complexity of a person, I mean, just, you know, I mean, I mean it's just one of those reminders of how stupid <laughs> 
but but yes, I got hooked very very quickly. Can you tell me a little bit about that project and and uh, what the the kind of main research focus was? Yeah, sure. So when a nerve fiber grows, its very leading end is called a growth cone, and it's a very it's an exploratory structure that sort of feels around the tissues around it and makes decisions about which way to go. And everything that we were taught as, as undergraduates at that time, which was the, the sort of early to mid 80s, was about attractive cues. And I'd thought as an undergrad, actually, this can't work because if you're trying to get things down a narrow path, if you make the path of attractants really narrow, that's brilliant for accuracy. But how do things find the path? Because it's too small. If you make it really wide so they can find it, how do they avoid blundering around along the wide path having no idea where they're going? Whereas if you did it the other way, if you had, you know, if, if instead you defined walls each side which were, which were repulsive, then things would go straight down the middle between the walls and any blundering around would quickly be self-correcting because they'd blunder towards the wall and run away from it again. Yeah. So it struck me that, that actually repulsion has to be part of the story. I was bothering people about this and a wonderful man called Roger Keynes, um, who's still uh, a professor in Cambridge, said that he had a system where they thought they were seeing repulsion. And this was where, where you, uh, down your spinal cord. I'm sorry, I must stop talking with my hands on an audio. <laughs> down, down your spinal cord, um, nerves come out from it, and they come out uh, on each side of your body. You get one nerve per vertebra. They come out between the vertebrae. And what Roger and, and his colleagues had found is that the, cell, the tissues each side of the spinal cord seem to be responsible for stopping the nerves coming out where they shouldn't. So if you mm -hmm. take those tissues away, the nerves can come out anywhere. They'd done a little bit of staining with, with lectins, which are proteins that attack carbohydrates, just because it's a kind of broad spectrum. If you don't know what you're doing, and especially really in the early days of molecular biology being applied to mammals, those kind of probes, you, could, you can sort of, don't know what you're doing in the sense that you, you don't know what the molecules are. Then a broad spectrum kind of thing to see if you can find any patterns of just going through somebody's lectin catalogue and buying lots and lots <laughs> is a good way to watch that then. Yeah. And they found one lectin which, which stained embryos in stripes, only staining the cells that seemed to tell neurons to go away. And he and a colleague of his, Jeff Cook, from the pharmacology department, who's an expert in carbohydrates, the things that lectins bind to, offered a PhD project to me if I wanted to go and pursue this. So I jumped at it. And working for two supervisors was actually great because Jeff was a really fine chemist. And as long as I could make him think, well, Jamie's a rubbish chemist, but he seems okay as an anatomist, and make Roger think, well, Jamie's obviously a rubbish anatomist. <laughs> I kind of survived them. They were both wonderful supervisors. And I had the great luck. So, so my, my job was to fish out whatever molecule this was that was binding to the lectin. And it could have been anything, but I had the enormous luck that that did turn out to be the thing that was repelling the growth curves, which, oh, which is the third turn of luck. So I, I got as far as identifying it as a protein with a particular molecular weight, and then that was the end of the PhD. And it was fine, and we got a neuron paper out of that. In those days, we weren't expected to do as much to get a paper or a PhD as people yeah. are now. Only this year have Jeff and Roger finally discovered what that molecule actually is. The null surface bound enzyme that causes a, a nitrous oxide signaling response in growth cones. It, you know, it, it took something like um, 30 years to find out what the molecule actually was. Wow. Nobody was expecting it to be an enzyme. It's just kind of, when muons were first discovered in nuclear physics, one of the physicists who read the news just sort of said, who ordered that? 
yeah, it's quite a nice journey from your initial sort of discovery all the way to finding out what the actual... Yes, and, and really, really nice. I mean, really nice that Roger and Jeff are still working together and still did that together. Because obviously quite a few years have passed and, you know, that <laughs> at least one of them isn't really a spring chicken anymore. Well, none of us are, goodness knows. I think the other message of this, they, obviously they've been doing other things, but, but they stuck at a problem for 30 years and they were allowed by their university to stick at a problem for 30 years without publishing a cell paper every year or any of that kind of thing. And, you know, often in science, people are expected to solve things quickly and to be producing paper after paper after paper. I think this is a nice illustration of just the value of sticking at something and being allowed the time to stick at something until you get the answer. Do you think certain things are lost when you're kind of, you're just on that publication train trying to get out paper after paper? Do you think that pressure has an impact? What's lost? It's the choice of the work to do. Peter Medawar, the Nobel-winning immunologist, once described, he defined science as the art of the soluble. And, you know, he made the point that in choosing a scientific problem, you have to choose something which is probably soluble. There's no point in devoting your life to something which you can never solve. But also, don't devote your life to solving an endless succession of trivial things, which, yes, they're soluble, but really, was it worth all of that? And I think The problem about the publish, 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 get a grant, get a grant, get a grant pressure is that it can push people towards either the trivial or towards things that everybody's trying to do. So it's a mad race and it actually doesn't matter whether an extra person jumps on the bandwagon or not. That's going to get solved. Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that reaches the journals that people really like publishing in are the things that are in huge races because journals like accepting papers that will get cited a lot and obviously very hot fields do do lots of citation. Whereas a lot of the stuff that really, really matters isn't like that at all. You know, an example is CRISPR. CRISPR DNA editing is a massive, massive thing now. But the original paper around CRISPR was published in a relatively obscure place and was barely cited for eight years. And, you know, and I think they're absolute heroes to have done that work carefully when it didn't look trendy and it wasn't being cited. But look what it's done now. So you mentioned before um, that you've chosen to focus on the mammalian kidney. What was your reasoning behind that? Well, I left the nervous system for two reasons. One was, okay, I know I got very lucky. I probably wasn't going to again, and I was really scared of its complexity. The other reason is that this is a very personal thing, so it won't be the same for others. The way that that research about neural repulsion was probably going to go towards clinical things, towards, towards helping spines and things regenerate, which is very, very important, was pretty soon going to force me into doing work in living animals, and I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to work on animal development without actually doing experiments in living animals. And I came across a book in the anatomy library in Cambridge called Organogenesis of the Kidney. And one of the things that shone through from that book from the very beginning is you can take kidney rudiments out of freshly killed embryos, um, which have not been messed about with them and they've just, you know, just been killed instantly. And you can grow them in culture. So you can see them, you can mess about with them, but there's no animal suffering in the middle of all of this. Whereas, of course, the problem about mammalian development is there's the mother. You know, you can't, you can't yeah. there's no way of experimenting on, embry- on embryos inside the mother without it really being fairly ghastly for the mother. So that's, that's the reason I chose the kidney. And I, I'd written, when I was looking for a postdoctoral job, I'd written to, well, Jeff actually recommended 
an amazing scientist called David Garrett, who was working down in Southampton, and he worked in, in interactions between cells, and he got interested in the kidney as somewhere he could study his favorite interactions. And I was very lucky that he I went down there to talk to him, and he offered me a postdoc position um, to work on the kidney. And the first thing he did is send me off to Helsinki to learn all of the techniques. And I've stuck with the kidney ever since because it's, it's horrendously complicated. If you want to study building some complex things, it is, but also there's a clinical need to make some progress with it. So, mm. you know, it's possible to get funded for it. And it's possible sometimes to have that feeling of maybe what I'm doing is possibly doing a bit of good. And yeah, a lot of sure. the people who work with postdocs and things are motivated strongly by the need to do good. You know, I'm, I'm more scientist than medic at heart. It would be nice to do something useful, but knowing is what really fires me up in the morning. Yeah. A lot of my colleagues in the lab are very fired up by doing good and good for them. And um, I think uh, you mentioned somewhere that the kidney, uh, a lot of the ways in which it develops is similar to the way other organs develop in the, in the human body as well, or uh, mammalian body. And so you can kind of scale it up and apply it to different organs. Yeah, I, th I think the technique, certainly. I mean, I mean, for a lot of organs, this idea of make a tree-shaped set of tubes and then plug stuff around it, that, that, is, that is a very standard way of making an organ that gets rid of something, secretes something, or breathes, because yeah. it's a way of using a lot of stuff in a small space. But also the general techniques, just understanding, you know, things like what cells can organise for themselves and the important role of breaking the symmetry of systems to get large-scale anatomy. I think those are going to be principles that, that extend across almost anything. It, it's making us understand the embryo in a slightly different way. And when you, when you start to look with that idea in your mind, then you see it everywhere. Can you see a future where there's, there's absolutely no animal testing? Do you think that's a possibility? Um, I doubt it. But the, for two reasons. One of them, which is probably the easier one to explain, but I'll have a go at both. One of them is just, there is too much that we don't know. You know, just testing as in testing drugs and things may be one day, but, you know, it, is, it may be easy to test whether a drug will damage the heart or the kidney. It will be harder for relatively high brain functions. I mean, we're used to the fact that we really can't test everything that human brains can do because we don't have other animals that, that can do all that we can. But there are things, you know, vision would be an example. Does something have an effect on vision? Or, well, it, that's going to be really hard to test in a dish. So I think there will always be some things like that. I think the other problem, people often concentrate on trying to look at the headline numbers of how many animals are used. The thing is, using animals is really expensive and is a bottleneck in the discovery of new medicines. When we move a great deal of it to non-animal testing, it doesn't actually mean fewer animals are used. It means far more medicines get tested mm -hmm. with the same number of animals because each medicine is mostly tested nowhere near animals and only the few that look as if they might make it to humans get to the animals. So there will be more that can actually get to that path. So what it, I suppose the pathway that we're taking is to have much more gain per animal used. Now, obviously, for a moral absolutist, then no animal use is acceptable, full stop. And, yeah. and there are people like that, and there are people who have, you know, who are total, totally convicted and they don't use things that are tested on animals, not even medicines, and, you know, I respect that. For people who are more relativists, then at least getting as much as you can for as little damage is a way to go. Awesome. Um, so I think we should uh, move on to talk a little bit about the synthetic biology stuff um, mm -hmm. that your lab does. 
uh, for someone who doesn't really have any idea about synthetic biology, what would you what would you say to them to describe what it is in a nutshell, if you can? In a nutshell, <laughs> in a nutshell, it's just genetic engineering, but done with attitude. <laughs> so, where genetic engineering is typically just just you know changing one gene in in a cell or an organism. With synthetic biology, we're tending to make entire systems of genes so that we're introducing a new behavior into yep. the cell. And sometimes, this isn't our work, but sometimes, for example, that's introducing a new metabolic pathway to make a valuable compound. That could be a drug. That could be the kind of enzyme which is used in low-temperature washing liquids that we're all used to now. It could be an enzyme for remediation, of you know, bioremediation, or for turning wood into a fuel. At our end of things, we are changing cell behaviors, not biochemically, but what cells do in terms of communicating with each other and in terms of making patterns and in terms of making shapes. Because again, we're interested in how tissues are made and we're interested in programming cells to make designer tissues. Again, for me, that is often done to find out, have we really understood how tissues form? For a lot of my colleagues working with me in the lab, the reason is because they want to build a tissue to solve a particular medical problem. And again, it's fine. You know, in a way, the motivation doesn't matter. We're all trying to get the job done. Is the kind of the end goal to move away from using things that have naturally evolved and just creating completely new molecules, proteins, tissues that act in a different way to what we've seen evolve in nature? That's part of it. Yes, I mean some of it, which is which is just for application. You know, for tissues, you can imagine. Um, some reasons you might want to do that. Life support machines that live outside the body, or even ones that you could imagine living inside, uh, at the moment they're almost completely mechanical, but there are aspects of living organs that are missing, and putting tissues inside the machines would be a way of bringing back some of that function. But just putting a lump of liver or a lump of kidney inside a machine is not going to work. What we really want to do is to generate something which is intrinsically really happy in the machine, ideally, that couldn't live anywhere else for safety reasons, but still does the the biochemical or the physiological thing that a normal tissue would. That's one reason for it. Another reason, you know, surgeons will recognise that a typical body uh, suffers damage, then they need a part, you know, just to reconstruct the normal part of the body. But if somebody is, is born with an atypical body, then repairing that may need a custom part, because what you're trying to fix isn't isn't the way that most humans are anyway. And at the moment, plastic surgery is used to do that. But of course, typically plastic surgery is a long succession of operations and a long succession of changes. It would be very nice just, you know, effectively to be able to order this part. You know, I'm being slightly fanciful, but those are the sorts of ideas behind all of this, as well as just doing to understand. Yeah, of course. And do do you think it's still quite far off like having uh, designer organs and f- for transplant and stuff like that? Yes, that's, that is definitely far off. Um, but, but there are things, you know, to do, what I suppose the most accessible things, sort of skin transplant, cornea, that kind of thing, that are very two-dimensional, that's, that's a little bit more imaginable yeah. in the near future. And also there are other uses, and we've talked entirely scientifically and medically, but several sculptors have contacted me about this because they're interested as artists having self-generating art you know and and sculptors don't have to work in enormous blocks of granite that they can't lift they could work at the micro scale and it's interesting the way that the way that creative people from all over the place like artists are starting to engage with all of this yeah i think that's really interesting actually 
I was reading about um, the uh, Vanta black, which is the incredibly dark pigment made from carbon nanotubes and how black, black you can get <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and um it started out as just um i think it was military research or something like that but then artists got interested in it and then there was kind of a whole big fight over who <laughs> who owned the pigment because can you own a pigment it's yeah. it's really interesting yeah. when you have that and another pigment that's been produced that can be sold to anybody except for the one who can. yeah <laughs> very complicated story that yeah so I think the, the interplay between science and art is really interesting sometimes. Um, so I was wondering what are the kind of limits of, of synthetic biology? Because I know that when you're making a, like a protein from scratch or something like that, you can't necessarily predict how it's, how it's going to fold once it's inside the body. Yeah. I think you, whether it's proteins or entire cell behaviours, you've exactly put your finger on it. We can't predict. There is a peculiar kind of act of faith that a lot of synthetic biologists have. And they like to present the subject as if it's an electronic set. You know, they, they refer to the host cell as a chassis, the way yeah. that radio builders of the interwar period would refer to the, the bit of aluminium onto which they attach their valves and things as a chassis. And they talk about genetic modules that can be kind of plugged together, rather the way that one might buy computer boards to plug into your PC. They, they really talk like this and they really write like this. And I think one of the reasons that there's been a lot of hype and the dreams of, you know, five or six years ago have not been realized by people who reckoned they could easily knock these things off in a year. It's because life isn't like that. The, this, the host cell is not a neutral piece of aluminium that will let holes be drilled in it. It will, it will react physiologically. And we don't understand biology very well in the first place. You know, it's easy to do electronics. Electronics is, is so well understood that each component is understood and the way they interact is understood. Biology, you know, we're right at the beginning of understanding how life works. And however arrogant people want to be, you know, I, I think there, there is far more not known than is known. And, and I think it's this way of just pretending that we know it all is frustrating and is slowing the field down and just accepting we're blundering around in the dark. So let's have open minds and learn. And particularly, let's learn from our mistakes rather than just kicking the cat and slamming the drawer and yeah. stopping the project. Actually, work out why something didn't work. What didn't we understand? That's much more promising, but rarer. Huge thanks again to Professor Jamie Davies, famed experimental anatomist, swing dancer, and owner of a boat called Saucy Mrs. Flopster. If you haven't fallen in love with this man yet, I don't know what's wrong with you. Join us in the next episode to hear the rest of our conversation about the perils of running a peer-reviewed journal and about how he inadvertently created the first biological database on the internet because of his poor memory. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you'd like to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com, and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. 
This episode was edited by my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. The awesome podcast cover art was designed by a site chief editor, Apple Chu. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. I've been your host, Tom Edwick. Until next time, keep it science.